only ten I see You're the only ten I see Welcome, Neil. This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, love to celebrate the cold weather by uh, just bleeding all the time out of my skin. Oh, really? Why is that? I just got cracks. I'm oh. all cracked up, uh, bleeding. You sounded horrible when you came in today. Do you have a cold this weekend? Oh, yeah. I got a, I got a lot of problems. <laughs> nice. Beautiful. All I have is... Uh, <laughs> I'm working on a hangover that I think I've had for about 36 hours. Today on This Is Hell, a couple weeks ago, we talked to Ethix, a student and member of the Paris-based collective platform Denquette Militante, about their article at Viewpoint Magazine, Back to the Future, the Yellow Vest Movement, and the Riddle of Organization. Ethix spoke with us the day before a general strike was launched, a strike that is now in its 12th day, I believe. Our first guest this week is writer and editor Jacob Hamburger, who returns to This Is Hell to discuss his New York Times op-ed, The Fury in France, Could the Latest Round of Strikes Spell the Beginning of the End for Emmanuel Macron? And the strikes could, but Macron's term doesn't end until 2022, and between now and then, the left will need to get its act together, and that could mean partnering with the Yellow Vest movement. Problem is, the Yellow Vests are very opposed to being part of any political party, with the success they have had in protesting Macron's policy, leading Macron to make concessions with the movement. Who can blame them? That said, France desperately needs a new political alternative to the choices that they have been offered in recent elections, and that's a choice between brutal austerity and even more brutal neo-fascism. Jacob writes on French politics and is an editor at Tocqueville 21, a blog on contemporary democracy. You can find out more at Tocqueville21.com. This will be Jacob's sixth appearance on This Is Hell, dating back to June 2017. You can hear all of our interviews with Jacob at our website, thisishell.com, by searching on his name. Follow Jacob on Twitter at JM Hamburger. Also, today it's time we do our biannual inventorying of what we've learned on the show over the last six months and topics we believed were the most important to cover, whether they were being ignored by everyone else or we thought they were not getting the attention they sorely deserved. And as it's our first hour of the week, we'll have some rotten history following Jacob and our conversation on what's next for the Yellow Vests and France left. Later this week on This Is How, we'll speak with Mike Montero. He wrote the book Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What We Can Do to Fix It. And Mike should know. He's a designer. We will also hear from sociologist Brendan McQuaid. Brendan is author of the new book, Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence Fusion and Mass Supervision. Provided with unprecedented access to domestic intelligence centers, Brendan points out that the U.S. has poured over a billion dollars into a network of interagency intelligence centers called fusion centers. These centers were ostensibly set up to prevent terrorism, but politicians, the press, and policy 
Makers have criticized them for failing on this account. We'll talk to Brandon, who is Assistant Professor of Criminology at the University of Southern Maine. And you can follow Brendan on Twitter at Brendan underscore McQuaid. Alex, did we confirm anybody else over the weekend? No, I'm still working on a couple people. Sweet. Of course, we'll end this week's show the way we do most shows, and that's with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is the ultimate cure developed by scientists, according to an article at The Mirror. All right, then. Headline, scientists develop the ultimate hangover cure. Here's how to make it yourself. The story states, to develop the drink, the researchers from the Institute of Chemical Technology in Mumbai analyzed the effects of various food items on two enzymes that break down alcohol. The results revealed that pear, sweet lime, coconut water, cheese, cucumber, and tomato were the most effective. Unsurprisingly, during taste tests, the researchers found that cheese wasn't exactly that palatable in a drink, and instead a drink that was 65% pear, 25% sweet lime, and 10% coconut water was the tastiest. The final drink was found to boost the activity of one enzyme by 23% and the other by 70%. Enzymes, I guess, not listed in this article which ones they are. Uh, Professor Rika Singhal, who led the study, said, A beverage made from a blend of sweet lime, pear, and coconut water could be used to overcome hangover. The consumption of this beverage with cheese, cucumber, and tomatoes may further alleviate the hangover symptoms. So that makes this week's hangover cure, the ultimate cure, developed by scientists, a cure that you can make yourself. Uh, yeah, really? <laughs> I don't know if I'd be able to make that myself. How about working out the percentages, I think, would be very difficult for me to do, especially when hungover. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong, please. This is hell. Every six months here on This is Hell... We review what we've learned over the past half year, and since the beginning of July, when we kicked off our annual Listener Appreciation Month, it's been rather hellish here on the show. We started with listeners telling us how we had to have guests on who would discuss dangerous, traumatic childbirth and how we can stop all that danger and trauma right now by having full surrogacy now. And our audience also wanted us to make certain we revealed that the logic of right-wing logic bros is juvenile and illogical, but those dopes don't realize it because again, juvenile and illogical. I mean, sure, it does work on them, but that's a pretty low bar. Then one of you insisted we dig deep into the unstable life lived in trailer parks and how these manufactured homes oddly or not so oddly sprung up as public housing complexes began to disappear and ended all of public funding. And a listener suggested themselves as a guest so they could remind us how the West Virginia teachers strike, the whole wave of last year's teachers strikes, were so revolutionary and may have actually created a new, younger generation of revolutionaries. Then you wanted us to do something that nobody else is doing, and that's discuss the actual history of burning fossil fuel. You told us to have someone on to explain the new brand of authoritarianism that is neoliberal fascism. You asked us to reconsider what the Cold War did to African-American opposition to apartheid. And you also wanted us to take a look back at exactly how Chicago became so, so segregated. But your guest suggestions didn't stop there. You also insisted that we have someone on the show to try and explain the ongoing uprising in Hong Kong known as the Water Movement and to remember the mid-1970s Carnation Revolution in Portugal 
which could be a lesson for all those rebellions taking place right now all around the world. Meanwhile, back in the States, he told us there's a real problem happening across the country with the continued privatization of public land, and you had us introduce you to them goon rules of black lives lived in fugitivity since birth. We wrapped up all of our listener appreciation by having a live report from Puerto Rico on the protest that led to the resignation of the island's governor. You had us re-examine the impact of financialization on cities. We also had coverage of what's happening in Afghanistan from someone who had just returned from the endless war. And you wanted us to have someone on who can help us all understand, better understand, capitalist globalization in order to defeat capitalist globalization. So we did. And then we threw you a party and featured artists who listen to This Is Hell and those suggested by listeners in our annual art show, as we do every year when wrapping up Listener Appreciation Month, again, that happens every July. With your recommendations completed, and after returning from my summer vacation at Cottage on Lake, we discovered Beringia, the area around the Bering Strait, and how none of the political economic systems created by Western European Europeans works in that harsh and wondrous landscape because it is far different from Europe. And we heard a good case for being against free speech in a country where there is such inequality, including in how the wealthy have much greater access to all media than the rest of us do. So how can you have equal and fair speech? So we're, we were told that we can't help but be racist, but we were also told that we can at least try to be anti-racist. And we learned how the media, seemingly all of the media, has an anti-Bernie bias. We continued our years of coverage of the U.S.-backed coup in Brazil and the massive protests that followed because seemingly all of the media, media was also ignoring what was taking place in Brazil at that time. We then christened our new studio. Studios we now have because of all the love you have shown to us by subscribing to our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And by going to thisishell.com, when you have clicked on the word support during our first conversation we had with a guest using our new studio, we found that migrant concentration camps on the U.S.-Mexico border represent a descent into fascist barbarism, which is an inherent tendency of capitalism. We then had the evils of social industry, a.k.a. Twitter, Facebook, et al., exposed for what it is, an addictive form of communicating that it is as revolutionarily culturally revolutionary as movable type ever was and we learned how while healthcare workers depend upon racial stereotypes and make prejudgments when caring for people of color we learned that they actually depend on those racial judgments to make all their prejudgments when they're working with uh, African Americans and we learned that from a white healthcare worker. We were also given an analysis of the divides between leftists and environmentalists and labor activists over climate change. We went back to Hong Kong to see what was happening in the protests against their corporatist government. We were shown all of the shortcomings of the ticking time bomb scenario that justifies torture. We got a primer on today's generation, Generation Left, and its promise to affect real transformative change. And we were enlightened as to the level of deadly community trauma and toxic stress that is devastating to urban America, and it gets worse. You know that black plastic fork you got with your last fast food delivery order? Yeah, we have no idea what's in those forks or the level of toxicity they contain, and that's pretty much the same for most of the plastic we use. And 
eat with every day. Sure, I know we see violent protests on the news all the time, but most protests really aren't violent, and most of the violence that does happen is usually by accident and nothing more than a breakdown in communication. When it comes to justice, the far right in the United States has changed the law drastically in the last few decades, even undermining the very idea of precedent. So when you hear people talk about precedent during the impeachment rulings and hearings, just think about it for a second. We also had a former auto worker and UAW member tell us about the union's corruptions that the union engaged in with the big three automakers. We discovered corrupt thoughts can also have deadly outcomes, like the idea that economic sanctions are not as awful as war, despite the fact that they have been weaponized into killing machines. Of course, being a comrade, thinking of your community, of what's best for your neighbors first, not yourself, can be an amazing thing, but not so amazing will be tourism during this era of the Anthropocene. We celebrated my birthday week by unwrapping our new weekday live streaming show, the best gift I have ever received for my birthday, so thank you, listeners. And by looking into the idea of alternative meat, which is a real bad idea when it comes to climate change, we then went into the evangelical mind with a former Christian evangelical finding out that the scam has little to do with actually acting in a Christian manner, and it's becoming more and more radicalized and apocalyptic and, yes, violent. There's good reasons why the Wall Street... Sorry. There's good reasons why the Walmart massacre this past summer happened in El Paso, as the city is a site of so much anti-immigrant fervor and hate. And we look forward into a history, future history of water, and the need for us to have a right to the source for all life. We re-examined the rulings of Clarence Thomas and were shocked to be told all his writings point toward his black nationalism. And yes, there is a right-wing black nationalism, leftists. While the rest of the media has moved on, we return to Ferguson to reassess exactly what happened during that uprising last year. And if you think Norway is a socialist utopia, you'll be very disappointed to learn it's a major contributor to fossil fuel consumption and global warming. Back on the justice beat, migrants have very little access to actual justice at the U.S.-Mexico border. Not that that should be too surprising, and it's about time that we end all abortion laws, as it is the only medical procedure that has any prohibition of any kind. The squatting movement is another way in which today's activists throughout Europe are challenging the commodification of everything, including a home. Unlike any other show anywhere, we had a journalist recently released from a Turkish jail on to reveal Pentagon-backed forces in Turkey and Syria are fighting CIA-backed troops there, too. That's how screwed up U.S. policy is in the region. And we got some more dirt on that really scary Christian evangelicalism we were talking about earlier. We were told it's actually scarier than we thought when we talked to another former evangelical who stressed that it's white evangelicalism that is the really frightening brand of the belief that has nothing to do or has everything to do with white supremacy and privilege and nothing to do with the teachings of Jesus Christ. We then took a tour of our American dystopia and what we saw was a nation that actually punishes poverty, punishes people for being poor. We tried to get a grip on the alchemy of meth and our guest analysis made us rethink meth as a performance enhancing drug for those who are struggling to keep up with the greater production demands on blue collar work and late capitalism. For you commies out there who think the world imperialist order is over due to globalization, guess again, and I'm looking at you, David Harvey, and there's no way we are going to be able to fix our planet to stop climate change, so we might want to turn 
to counterculture for help because the current culture is killing our planet. Believing somebody is misogynist or that we live within institutional misogyny could be a dead end, as trying to overcome misogyny is an incredibly daunting task, if not currently impossible task. Like overcoming racism can distract us from undermining all the racist practices that need to be challenged. We all reconsidered, we also reconsidered neoliberalism as a get this well-intended attempt at democratization of the market that has gone horribly wrong. And we reported on the U.S. media's whitewashing of neoliberal repression in both Chile and Ecuador. Real estate, as we all know, is an incredibly racist industry, which explains so much of the racial wealth inequality in the U.S. that manifests itself in dilapidated housing and neighborhoods that are crumbling as they are denied the public service that white communities take for granted. There is a space that has not yet been commodified, not yet, by capitalism, and that's sleep, which can be a very radical action, and we spend nearly a third of our lives in slumber. We also went to Bolivia to hear a first-hand report on the revolution as it began and how the racist, fascist coup was taking aim, deadly aim, at the indigenous. I know this is weird, but we also had a patriotic American on our show, a former CIA case officer, but we had him on because he had blown the whistle on racism at the CIA, and for doing so, he believes he was framed for a crime he did not commit, a frame-up that landed the Patriot in prison. There are other ways of learning than going to school, and we explored how we learn and what kind of education we might have in in an autonomous university. We ruined Thanksgiving for you by giving the history of Europeans' first encounters with the indigenous, which were all about whites enslaving natives. Only 100 years ago, everyone knew race, sex, and ethnicity defined everything about who we are. That is, we knew that until somebody actually went into the field to study other cultures. The study revealed we are defined by our culture, not the color of our skin or where our family is from or our genitalia. Not that everybody has accepted that science because it proves race is a fiction and that's why Republicans, conservatives, the rights they the right, they all hate science of all kinds because it does not support their racist and white supremacist beliefs. Then we are exposed to the Council for National Policy, a network of far-right Christian fundamentalists and billionaires and Trump administration officials who are trying to impose a theocratic plutocracy in the U.S. with a rich ruling as if they were selected by God and any attempt to confront that power is would then be heresy. This year, we also got back to France's Yellow Vest movement, which is effectively protesting neoliberalism and shaking the government of Emmanuel Macron. When it comes to standing up to power, we took a long look at the Green New Deal and what kind of future it might bring. We were reminded that school is stupid, and any idiot knows that, and also stupid, very stupid driverless cars, which will never happen, but that doesn't mean tech and auto companies and their servants in government won't try to change every U.S. city to accommodate their dystopian science fiction future. And our most recent guest talked to us about another uprising, another rebellion, another revolution that is not being reported in the U.S. press, and that's the constitutional crisis that is the Lebanese revolution. And no, it's not only about gas taxes like we're being told here in the U.S. press. Again, we couldn't have done any of that hell without you, so thank you, and for giving you so much hell this year, you're welcome. Biting the hand that refuses to feed us since 1996, this 
is hell. Coming up this week, what does the Yellow Vest movement mean for the future of alternative leftist politics in France? Designers are ruining the planet by design. A more surveillance police intensive system of social control can lead to decarceration without ever addressing the issues of mass incarceration. And we'll wrap up this week as we do most weeks with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. The revolution will not be televised, but we're not on television. This is hell. The massive general strike in France is nearly into its second week, and there's no end in sight, I think. I don't think anything happened over the weekend, but we'll be finding out shortly. This is a potentially challenging President Macron throughout the entire holiday season. Here to help us understand what this could mean for a return of the left and an alternative to austerity and neo-fascism in France. Returning to This Is Hell is writer and editor Jacob Hamburger, who wrote the New York Times op-ed, The Fury in France. Could the latest round of strikes spell the beginning of the end for Emmanuel Macron? Welcome back to This Is Hell, Jacob. Hi, Chuck. How are you doing? Good to be back. Great to have you back on the show. So had, did anything happen over the weekend? The strikes end? Can you update us on anything that might have happened over the last 48 hours? Over the last 48 hours, not a ton. Um, there, So the strike was initially started on December 5th, and uh, that was a massive demonstration of, uh, you know, the, the unions were claiming over a million people, the government saying slightly less. You had another demonstration that happened the next week, uh, last Tuesday on the 10th, and there's another demonstration planned for tomorrow. So we'll see, you know, it'll be a test to see how many people the, the unions can keep turning out. Meanwhile, there have been as well uh, last Saturday, the Saturday before, right after the, the strike started, the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vests, um, organized demonstrations around the country as well in a sort of um, solidarity action. And you've been seeing a little bit in some cities, notably in Strasbourg, there, um, there were some more actions um, more recently that brought striking uh, union members and Yellow Vests together. But uh, so far, it's... Um, you know, you, you're seeing things in, in different spots around the country where some of these different combinations are, are occurring. So, you know, political protests in France aren't anything new and they happen regularly relative to, say, here in the United States. It's almost a weekend tradition. Besides size, what makes these protests different? Well, I think what's different is that, so, you know, as you're, you're totally right that especially since Emmanuel Macron has been president in France, uh, there have been plenty of protests. There have, this, there have been plenty of strikes as well. So you had in his reforms to the labor code brought brought people out into the streets on strike. His reform to the rail service brought the rail workers on, on strike, um, similarly disrupting transit like you're seeing now. You had uh, his reforms to the university system bringing students out on strike. And so in 2017, 2018, you were seeing this fairly regularly. But you could tell from, from Macron's point of view that they weren't. This wasn't something taken all that seriously. The, I think the Macron and his, and Edouard Philippe, the prime minister, they were fairly confident that yes, there's opposition. You know, the, we can expect opposition from the unions. We can expect it from some of the the smaller far left opposition parties. But ultimately, there's nothing that's going to really put us in difficulty. What what changed was then late last year, you had the Yellow Vest movement arise. That it was suddenly doing opposition politics in a way that wasn't quite familiar. It wasn't marching down the same avenues of Paris uh, at this, at, you know, the same, it wasn't waving the same flags and 
um, showing the same symbols as the, the left-wing opposition parties and the unions. And it, was, it really started disrupting things. And it was bringing different people out into the political sphere. And so with the yellow vests, the, the Macron and Philippe really felt that they had to react to this and that you, know, you got some concessions from them early on as the movement was going on. Um, and I think what's different now is that there's some sense that maybe these two things will come together. It, it hasn't happened yet. You know, I, I, I mentioned that there have been, you know, there are people wearing yellow vests that show up to the strikes. There are people who are on strike with, with different unions that, have, that are on strike that come to the yellow vest-led protests. But for the moment, they're, they're, two, they're two separate phenomena. Nobody really quite knows what the gilets jaunes, the yellow vests, mean. Um, any, every attempt to sort of channel that into a political party, especially for the European elections, has, has more or less failed. And, but what you see now, with the, because the strikes right now are a response to this retirement um, reform, it's a kind of issue that has the potential to, to um, affect quite a large percentage of the, of the French population. And so what's different here is not only that there's more people out in the streets, but it's that the, the yellow vests kind of concern of people, ordinary people's general economic well-being um, is something that is potentially ha, ha, um, is on the table here with, with these strikes. And it's something that could, I think, mobilize and sustain a larger, um, a larger and more coherent opposition to Macron. But as I say in the piece, that's something that's still very speculative. Um, and we've seen time and time again that trying to take each different, um, each different event in opposition to Macron and put that into a political movement has been very challenging. Well, let's talk about that economic well-being for a moment. You write in your New York Times op-ed that was published last Tuesday on December 10th, France is paralyzed since a general strike began on Thursday, December 5th. Planes have been grounded, mail delivery stopped, and schools closed, and trains remain in their depots. Even lawyers are staying home. How much, how, how bad is the general strike for the economy? And to what extent is that dividing any public support for the yellow vests? Because people are unable to get their uh, get to their jobs and unable to, you know, make a uh, living. So, I mean, in terms of support for the strike, um, this, it's, you know, going even, even going into the strike, um, what's interesting is that you had um, both a large public support for the strike and kind of paradoxically, you had polls showing that there was fairly significant public support in the abstract for the idea of pension reform. So what's interesting here is that I, I, um, my colleague at um, the blog on French politics I run, Tocqueville 21, uh, my colleague Art Goldhammer um, sum, summarized this nicely that there's support for reform on this pension issue. I think people understand that there's, there's changes to be made, but there's wide distrust of, of Macron in this particular government to deliver it in a way that's equitable. And, um, and so I think... You know, with with every general strike like this, you know, as as things go on, there's the potential that people, um, you know, people are sick of not having their not being able to make it to work. Um, certainly, lo- lower income workers who are not striking with uh, or who can't afford to go on strike, uh, who might uh, um, are having difficulty making it to to work. Of uh, in media parts of French newspaper, there was just a story on that the other day. Of and so there's there's clearly potential for as there always is for a massive labor action of this size that people 
will want to return to, to their normal lives. Uh, the, the unions are hoping to extend the strike long enough that it'll risk um, really shutting down traffic around the country over the Christmas holidays. So that means no Christmas shopping. That means uh, Christmas tourism into, into, into France, which, it, you know, which obviously is a huge business for the country, is, is potentially jeopardized. Um, so this is something that could affect the economy in a serious way. Um, you know, the, the unions are gambling uh, that, that they'll be able to push through that long and, and that'll, cause, that'll force the government to make further concessions to the reform project or even abandon it altogether. Um, but uh, what's interesting about the, you know, as, as I said about the, the, the retirement pr uh, reform project is that um, even sectors of the economy that aren't necessarily, you wouldn't think of as people who are the most likely to go on strike, uh, could be affected because there's what you have in France is this set of different pension regimes for different professions, um, most of them, you know, have, uh, being public servants. So that includes even some people who are lawyers of the, you know, of the Paris bar, who ordinarily you wouldn't think of lawyers as people who would necessarily go on, you know, be going out with the rail workers and the, and you know, the, air, for example, the air workers on, um, on strike. Um, but because these regimes stretch into you know, a fair number of different professions, um, there are a lot of people who are motivated to stick it out, especially teachers, nurses, uh, and obviously and transit workers, um, where they're, you know, they're hoping to get, get past that opposition to you know, weeks of, of standstill. And that pension system that you said there is public support for reforming the pension system, just not necessarily the way that the Macron administration will be doing it. Uh, quoting CNBC, Macron's government unveiled controversial pension reform. CNBC reports French Prime Minister Edouard Philippe announced full details of a reform. Benoit Test, who is National Secretary of the French Trade Union Federation Syndicale Unitaire, told CNBC that workers must amplify the strike, must increase it. Meanwhile, Philippe stated it is time for a universal pension scheme. CNBC adds the government plans to consolidate the current 42 different pension regimes, which vary according to profession in 2-1. Philippe also said, we will put an end to the special regimes. Gradually, under the new system, elected officials and ministers will be treated exactly like all French people, and I think this is how it should be. CNBC mentions at many points in that story that France's pension system is one of the costliest worldwide. Having politicians being in the same pension system as everyone else, streamlining the system, reining in costs. That all sounds very political, politically reasonable. What do those on strike not like about what Macron wants to do to their pension uh, system within these reforms that he has uh, pushed forward just recently? Right. That's, that's really, that's a great question. Um, so um, Thomas Piketty, the, you know, the famous uh, French economist who studies inequality, um, uh, he made the very important point on this issue that there's there's potential to create a system that looks in some ways like what the government is proposing. Um, you get rid of the separate, you know, completely separate regimes that, that handle this, the pensions differently, but that still maintains a commitment to social equality. I, I kind of think of the separate regimes as being sort of a not very precise and maybe not the most logical system, but it's a way of of trying to ensure a, a, some kind of progressive um, uh, or redistributive element of, a, of the system. And by that, you could say, for example, school teachers might not be paid as much as, 
as um, other 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 segments of, of the French labor market. They might even be underpaid, you know, compared to what we think the value of their work is. But if they have a slightly more advantageous pension regime, that's in some way a form of compensation for it. And so um, I think what people are concerned with is not necessarily that a universal system that gets rid of all the different regimes is inherently a bad thing, but it's that by getting rid of the special regimes, you lose the part of the pension system that ensures some measure of, of equality and also compensates for things, um, for example, for certain sectors like rail workers that you might think people who are you know, working outside on, on railroads, they might have, for, for various reasons, have different life expectancies, so they should be allowed to retire earlier. Um, so these are sort of imprecise ways of ma maintaining a sort of progressivity in, in the system. So I think Piketty has made this point that it's, it's possible to move to a universal system but that doesn't manage each of these systems separately, but that maintains some sort of, of uh, redistributive or, or uh, distributive justice element of the system. So I, I think what the, sh the polls I just mentioned show are that the French public in general understands this, but the worry is that Macron, and this has sort of been the, the, the leitmotif of his entire presidency, is that um, he, he delivers on the part that cuts services and that uh, weakens protections for different groups that need them in French society and doesn't follow through on the other, on the other part of the equation that, that reinforces different forms of protection. So uh, this is his slogan all throughout his candidacy and now presidency has been en même temps at the same time. So he's promised time and again, I'm going to weaken certain labor protections, but create different new ones on the other side to modernize the system. Um, I think at this point now, most of the French public, um, um, or at least a large percentage of the French public, doesn't have much confidence in Macron to do that in a way that is just and fair for everybody even if they think that the current pension system is not the ideal one you could design. Yet you write that Mr. Macron, who has long thought himself uniquely capable of succeeding where his predecessors failed in having any pension system reform, is hoping to weather the storm once again. To you, what explains Macron's confidence? What does it say about him or his policies? Well, partially it's just, it's his, in a way, it's his brand. That's, that's the image that he's always sought to project. It's that... Um, We've had a system that, uh, that goes back and forth between these two parties, the Socialist Party and then the Republican Party, which is the, has changed name several times, but it's the heir to, uh, to the, the Gaullist movement. Um, we've changed between these two systems over and over again. We can't get certain things done. We can't reform this pension system that everybody knows we have to reform. I'm going to come in, Macron, and I'm going to get I'm going to start a new party that sort of combines elements of these two, and I'm going to get things done that they couldn't because of their attachment to sort of these traditional French ways of, of doing politics. So he's always presented himself as a reformer who's going who's gonna to break up the, the political system and, and even if it's unpopular, you know, push through change that, that, in his opinion, needs to happen. So that's been his image from the get-go. And I think, you know, that's, in some ways it's been confirmed, at least kind of, I would think, in his mind by the fact that he won the presidential election. He's been in, you know, he, he's, uh, his opponents have failed to mount a serious opposition to him. You saw in the European elections last time around that the only party that even, that, well, they actually the, 
Uh, Marine Le Pen's party actually got a slightly better score than his party did in the European elections, but it was fairly close. And you see that the socialists, the Republicans, uh, Mélenchon's party, La France Insoumise, all the other left and right opposition parties did fairly poorly. And so I think Macron's calculus is that even if people don't like what I'm trying to do, the only option for them when it comes time to vote for, you know, you know, to whether or not to put him back in office is Marine Le Pen. And I think he's banking on the fact that in a two-way race, you're not going to get 51% of French people supporting Marine Le Pen. What happened to uh, La France Insoumise? I mean, what was it, 2.2 percentage points, I think, is what Jean-Luc Mélenchon lost to uh, not getting into the actual final round of the voting. So what happened to that kind of popularity that almost got uh, La France Insoumise into uh, office and into the government? So I think a lot of it does, I think a lot of the blame does have to be put on Mélenchon himself. Um, there, he's been in, he lost a lot of um, credibility a little over a year ago. Um, there was um, there was a raid on, on his office. Uh, there was some suspicion of financial mishandling. And some people close to him sort of said, oh, this is a political setup. This is Macron, you know, going after his political opponents. Um, you know, uh, I, I can't. And but at the same time, it looked like there was potentially some mishandling of funds. But in any case, it's that's not really the question. What, what happened was there was this raid on his office and he and he sort of flipped out. He goes and he's yelling at the pol- policeman raiding his office to, Things like my person is sacred. I am the republic, and he was. And I think a lot of people just kind of laughed at the guy after that, like, like uh, going around saying that you know that it, it seems like he's just kind of gone off the rails a little bit. And um, that was sort of, in a way, the beginning of a long trail towards um, a decline in his popularity. Um, they had a very poor showing in the European elections. Uh, Mélenchon was actually recently just. Um, Finally convicted of obstruction of uh, obstruction of justice after the whole incident with the the police outside of his his uh, office, and so the, he's been sort of generally a little bit more unhinged and a little bit less. I think these these sorts of incidents have have made him seem a little bit less in touch with what's going on in, with all with the gilets jaunes and with you know this the actual opposition that's bubbling up um, in in Macron's administration. Um, and then, you know, there are just incident after incident that just lead you to think maybe this guy is not the person who we need leading the French left. Uh, just the other day after Corbyn, um, Corbyn lost the election in the United Kingdom, um, he went off on a Facebook post that was going off onto all these tirades about the great rabbi of, of, of England and the, and the French, the French, um, a French organization that, that, uh, represents the Jewish community. So it was veering into some kind of anti-Semitic directions that, um, that just, it, it, I think it, it's belying the, 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 the increasing distrust that people have for Mélenchon. Um, so I think what you, it's, it's, a, and it's a shame because I, I wrote a piece about his party, La France Insoumise, uh, a few years ago where, and, uh, what I tried to show is really that they were doing some, a lot of things that the French left has, you know, neglected to do for quite some time. They're really trying to, uh, engage with grassroots level local uh, local based democracy. Um, they're trying. They're they were reading the uh, the works of Saul Alinsky to try to learn how to you know do better uh, community organizing in, in different cities around France. 
Um, and I think there was a really, there was a, there was a valuable attempt at popular democracy in La France Insoumise. And it's a shame that Mélenchon has sort of shot himself in the foot a little bit in moving that forward. Um, there's right now, I, I think the potential heir to Mélenchon as the leader of the insurgent populist left is someone who's a member of the, his party, François Ruffin, but who's a little bit independent. He's, um, he was a journalist at first, sort of the, he's been called the Michael Moore of Picardy. He, he's done documentaries sort of, um, uh, uh, making fun of or show um, some of the largest conglomerates based in France. Um, and right, and he's someone also who he comes from Picardy, comes from a uh, working class region of the country. And he, during the Gilets Jaunes movement, he's, um, he showed a real kind of affinity for speaking to people at the, at the roundabouts where, where Gilets Jaunes were protesting and talking to them and joking around with them. So, he, so he's, he's very good at sort of just um, shooting the breeze with ordinary people at these these roundabout protests, and um, lately in the press, a little bit before these strikes got started, he was trying to sort of rebrand himself as an eco populist. So he's trying to work work with some of the um, the green parties that have been doing well recently. In um, they did well in the the European elections and in many cities, they're also quite strong, and trying to sort of combine elements of this populist discourse with an environmental message, sort of anti consumerist. Um, uh, um, and so he's trying to create a new language of, of how to articulate, you know, um, a political alternative in France. So he was one person I cited in this piece as an example of a potential alternative message for French, for French politics going forward. Um, cause unfortunately it looks like the, the, the new style of politics that La France Insoumise, um, sort uh, was pioneering just a few years ago has sort of been stalling in the last few years. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke with Ethics, a student and a member of the Paris-based collective platform D'Enquête Militante. The collective's article of Viewpoint magazine was also published at uh, Notes from Below, and it's titled Back to the Future, the Yellow Vest Movement and the Riddle of Organization. Ethics told us that there was some right-leaning, if not right-wing participation, and you could even describe the beginning of the Yellow Vest Movement, he said, as right-wing, but police repression changed all that as the protesters either radicalized or they simply left the movement because they could not rationalize their general support for police with the police repression they were experiencing. Did police repression and right-wing influence on the Yellow Vest movement? So I, I, I wouldn't, you know, I think from, from what I can tell, there's, um, and I, I've seen, you know, someone who, someone has a piece coming out for our publication, Tocqueville 21, about this, who describes that the Yellow Vest movement is in a way, sort of a three-way split between between genuine leftists, um, people on the on the right, and even the far right, and then a sort of third category of of people who are sort of new to politics. They've been de- they had previously been uh, disingen- um, they'd been uh, disillusioned by politics, and and the yellow vest movement sort of brings them into politics for the first time in their lives, or at least in a long time. So um, it's definitely the case, and I think this has been widely observed, that police repression, which has been quite, quite uh, extreme in many cases um, and has left many people without eyes and hands with the, the flashball um, grenades that they, they've used in some of these protests, um, it's definitely brought a new perspective to a lot of people. And so what my inclination is, I think, de- definitely many of these people who are coming to the politics for the first time through the Yellow Vest movement, uh, from some concern out of 
economic fairness, see this when they go out into, into protests in their city, and then that it has quite a radicalizing effect. I don't know if we can say for certain that, the, that all of the far-right elements within the Yellow Vests movement and uh, more broadly has gone away. Um, there's certainly been elements of, of, the, of the movement, people who go out in public with the Yellow Vests and, and, um, and represent it some ways in, in the streets. Um, there's certainly been uh, people who are, you know, have been recorded saying things that are either anti-Semitic or, or virgin to conspiracy theories. And I don't think we can say for certain that that's gone away. At the same time, I, I think it's disingenuous to claim that any one of these people essentially represents the Yellow Vests. But in the same way, I think we should be cautious about saying that some people further to the left do so as well. What, the thing that's really striking about the Yellow Vests all throughout their existence has been how radically difficult it is to categorize them. And they really rejected anyone who claims, I know what the Yellow Vests are and what they represent, and I'm going to represent them. That's been something that uh, has been has been almost unanimously rejected every time somebody tries to do that. So um, I think getting back to you know this question of political alternatives, that's part of the difficulty. Is um, nobody there's this profound dissatisfaction with the status quo and this desire for a new kind of politics. I think the yellow vests show that quite clearly. But anyone who tries to stand up and say I represent that alternative, it's very easy to shoot that person down. It sounds like the, this is a protest against the only two choices, and the two choices are uh, neoliberalism and neo-fascism. It seems like, or austerity, you can say, and neo-fascism. And it seems like these protests are against having only those two choices. You write about this is a protest against Macron's world. You write some 800,000 people took to the streets across the country back on December 5th, and another major demonstration took place on December 10th as the strike continued. As one participant put it to the French me, uh, newspaper, newspaper media part, the mass mobilizations are meant as a rebuke to Macron and his world. What is Macron's world that the, these strikes oppose? Well, I think, uh, as you put it there, um, that, that does quite a good job. I think it's a world where... Um, the way forward, as, as Macron would say, is into is a world of neoliberal reforms, where um, um, deconstructing regimes of social protection and having um, uh, a much more in individualistic conception of what what is owed between a person and and the state and the collective than existed previously, and um, where previous attempts to um, protect, protect uh, to provide social protection are, are seen as sort of a relic of an old world, um, an old world way of doing politics. And we're the only alternative to this progress into a more nimble, flexible um, state um, that, that favorizes uh, that growth and entrepreneurship and, and, you know, all of and this this vision of, of of a market society, the only alternative to that is um, is neo-fascism. Is uh, it's either you support um, a sort of neo-Thatcherian uh, deconstruction of the welfare state, or you support um, you support excluding migrants and you support um, stigmatizing um, Arabs and and uh, and Africans and Jews and other minorities and um, and so the only alter so 
neoliberalism is cast as the only progressive option uh, and and the only truly truly serious opposition is is racism more or less. Um, so I th I think that um, this idea that we're opposing Macron in his world it kind of it evokes that Macron has you know there's a certain there's a worldview and that there's a there there's a culture there's a sort of entire cultural baggage to to what Macron is proposing. And the, the great question, again, is exactly what to put in its place. So the, I think what we're still seeing with the, the Gilets Jaunes is that, that um, we don't quite know what that alternative worldview looks like and what a new form of solidarity, what a new form of social protection uh, looks like going forward in this world. And I, I, that's why I think it's significant to think about the people trying to combine um, a more sort of traditional left or, or more left populist approach with, environmental, with an environmental outlook because um, I think if you can take that seriously, you know, um, you can construct an, a world uh, a worldview that looks something like what we call what we call here the Green New Deal, where you know you you think about social protection and um, in terms of reconstructing a new future, you know, uh, to adapt to adapt to climate change. I think that's something that, to me, seems like a promising avenue for just thinking about what a new future would look like. But for the moment, because that these these new imaginations are so um, are so tentative. Um, Macron has been fairly effective in 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 saying to the French public, "Look, the only alternative to me is Le Pen, and we certainly don't want to go there. So um, we're the most progressive option available." One last question for you, Jacob. We've been speaking with writer and editor Jacob Hamburger, who wrote the New York Times op-ed, The Fury in France. Could the latest round of strikes spell the beginning of the end for Emmanuel? Jacob writes at Tocqueville21.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at J.M. Hamburger. One last question for you, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. I had a completely different one written up, and I just thought of this as you were talking. To what extent do you think the very... You were talking about these uh, uh, lack of an alternative and a lack of, uh, not lack of, but the difficulty in having a new political imagination to come up with a new alternative to neo-fascism or austerity. To what extent is the fact that France is a member of the EU or belongs to the EU, to what extent is that an obstacle to having that political imagination, to figuring out what that alternative is? Certainly to some extent. Um, you know, um, there's... No, you can think of, for example, the the rule, the EU budget rule that that um, deficits can't exceed three percent of GDP, which certainly was for Macron. It was more than just a, a rule. It was it was for him respecting that rule uh, had its, had this real symbolic importance that if we get there, we can sort of gain legitimacy to, um, you know, to work with the Germans to um, to rethink what what Europe's going to look like. So. Uh, for Macron, you know, certain things like that um, have been a precondition to to doing it to any other ambitions you might have for the European Union. Um, and I think you can look at the 2017 election. Um, the EU, in a way, was you could say uh, disagreements over the, the EU was maybe the reason that um, a left wing candidate. Um, failed to make the second round between um, Mélenchon and the and the Socialist Party nominee uh, Benoît Hamon, who was a fairly left-wing candidate who had 
you know, in terms of a social policy, had many of the same ideas as Mélenchon. The main, I think, reason uh, uh, there was an irreconcilable difference between them was that um, Amon refused to, not that he refused to criticize the European Union, but he refused um, to endorse Mélenchon's position, which was basically to threaten leaving the EU or withdrawing from its central treaties, which is effectively withdrawing, um, as sort of a, as sort of a, a threat to to force the rest of the EU to renegotiate its kind of core principles. Um, so Amon was unwilling to put that on the table, and I think many French left wing voters um, were unwilling to to make that stance. And so, I think both in terms of some of its sort of more technocratic policies, like the three percent rule, and also just the political um, the the meaning of EU membership. Is a, it's a divisive issue on the left in that sense. Um, certainly now, I think with with Brexit, you're not going to. I think it's it'll be less likely to probably see an outright, uh, even something as as that gets as close to uh, withdrawal on the table as as Mélenchon's proposal. Um, so I think what's going to have to happen for any left wing alternative, like we've been talking about, is to be able to articulate um, how the EU how partnership with other European countries can foster, um, can foster economic equality, climate and climate justice, and some of these values we've been talking about. So I think there's been a proposal on the table for a European Green New Deal. So I, I certainly think that any left alternative is going to have to engage, uh, engage quite uh, deeply with an idea like that. Jacob, thank you so much for being back on our show. Great piece in the New York Times. Again, the fury in France. Could the latest round of strikes spell the beginning of the end for Emmanuel Macron? And you can hear all of our conversations with Jacob at our website, thisishell.com. Thank you so much for being back on our show, Jacob. Oh, thanks as always, Chuck. Take care. Yeah, uh, you should go back to thisishell.com and you should search on Jacob's name, uh, Jacob Hamburger, because uh, not only does he talk about what's happening right now with the Yellow Vest movement, but he goes back and talk, and we can go back and talk to uh, hear him talk about his article on La France Insoumise when he was introducing that organization to us. All that, that stuff is at thisishell.com. There was something I wanted to read. I was going to read this to uh, Jacob. It was an article that he and I were sending back and forth to each other a few days after his opinion piece appeared in the New York Times. In These Times ran a story called Uber is Offering Scab Rides to Help Break France's General Strike by a past guest on our show, Julianne Tweeten. Julianne writes, as of December 5th, 82% of rail conductors were participating in the work stoppage and with at least 90% of all regional rail services closed. In response, Paris's bus and metro operator RATP is offering discounts on rides with 32 private transportation companies, including Uber's e-bike and e-scooter vertical jump and e-scooter company Lime in an attempted strike break. She then quotes Mostafa Maklad, a U.S.-based driver for Uber, Lyft, and Grubhub, and organizer with Gig Workers Rising, saying, It's very alarming that a public transportation agency would partner with private companies so as to undermine worker power. And this isn't the only time that uh, governments have done these things with Uber, with those kind of ride-sharing services. So every time you get in an Uber, remind yourself, 
that you're helping breaking a strike, bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On December 20th, 1907, 112 years ago this Friday, some two to 3,000 dock workers in the northern Chilean city of Iquique had been on strike for almost two weeks in a long-brewing response to deteriorating working conditions in the country's booming salt Peter industry. Considering the way Chilean police are currently responding to those on strike in Chile, my guess is this will end with horrible violence and brutality. The dock workers had been joined by thousands more workers who kept arriving from various saltpeter mines in the adjacent Atacama Desert, which were under both Chilean and foreign ownership. The workers, many accompanied by their wives and children, had occupied Iquique's main square and the adjacent Santa Maria School and Rotten History always gets a little more rotten when women and children show up. Along with improved worker safety and job security, they demanded payment in actual money instead of script tokens that were only accepted at stores owned by the mining companies, which sold them the necessities of life at a very, very high price. So for those of you here in Chicago, it was like Pullman on steroids. But the mine workers said they would not negotiate until the strikers went back to work, which kind of misses the whole point of a strike. Meanwhile, the Chilean government had sent in troops under the command of General Roberto Silva Renard to restore order. You know what that means. In a scuffle on December 20th, they shot and killed six of the striking workers and wounded several others. And at 2.30 the following afternoon, December 21st, General Silva Renard issued a warning that if the assembled workers did not dispense within an hour, then he was going to restore order by firing on them. Most of the workers stayed put, but Silva Renard's troops opened fire with rifles and machine guns anyway, first in the city square and then at the Santa Maria School, where they mowed down an estimated two to 3,000 men, women, and children in a bloody massacre. Seven years later, in 1914, the brother of one murdered miner, seeking revenge against Silva Renard, caught him outside his office and stabbed him seven times with a dagger, a dagger coated in strychnine. The attack left the general blind and paralyzed, and he died six years later in 1920. Not until that year did the mine owners finally begin to make small improvements in their employees' working conditions. What the hell, Chili? What's the brutal labor history, and why are you back to brutalizing protesters again right now, today, at this moment? Chilean police and military forces are definitely on my naughty list this year and for, well, the last 115 years. In Rotten History, December 21st, 1910, 109 years ago, it's this Saturday, at the Holton Bank Mine. Jeez, mines. This is, there's mine in Rotten History. I think all of mining is Rotten History. At the Holton Bank Mine in West Houghton, England, also known by the locals as the Pretoria Pit, a total of 344 coal miners were killed in an early morning underground explosion. Since coal mining was mainly a young man's occupation, which far too often became a dead man's occupation, most of the victims were between the ages of 13 and 30, though a few were as old as 61. The miners had been in an upbeat mood that day, a good mood while coal mining. Okay. 
working one of the late shifts before their Christmas break. And for the 13-year-old victim, it was his first day of work in the mine, and apparently his last. The cause of the explosion was later traced to a buildup of explosive gas caused by a roof collapse in one of the mine shafts. The Pretoria pit disaster was the third deadliest in the history of British coal mining. Well, that's not so rotten. Third deadliest? I mean, it's not like they had the deadliest coal mine disaster four days before Christmas. Now that would be rotten. Third deadliest? Please. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell Live from Hangover Country. Alex, what's this week's question from Hell? Did you come up with one yet or not? I think you're doing that tomorrow, right? Uh, I can come up with one now if uh, people are listening. Sure. Uh, based on what Jacob just told us about uh, Mel and Sean screaming, uh, my body is sacred to the police, mm-hmm. the question is, uh, what are you yelling at the police? <laughs> what are you yelling at the police? What are you yelling at the police? And we'll figure out what your prize is going to be. Chuck will yell at the police. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) You don't want to see that. Every time I've yelled at the police, I've ended up... Not every time. That's not true. And uh, let's see. uh, Tomorrow, what's happening on our two-hour streaming live show here at thisisheld.com beginning at 2 p.m.? Still no clue about 2 o'clock, but in the 3 o'clock hour, Mike Montero will be on to talk about his book Ruined by Design, which I'm really excited about. And what about Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show? Uh, Brandon McQuaid will be on to talk about his uh, book from University of California Press, Pacifying the Homeland. The term I like in that book the most so far is decarceration uh, as an attempt to avoid, uh, you know, like... They want to end mass incarceration, so we will have decarceration, which is a way to uh, focus on and challenge and confront mass incarceration without actually doing it. So what they're going to do is just have us always under surveillance all the time. Someone else just talked about that on the show earlier this summer, too. Yeah, I think so, too. That was very... Oh, yeah, and it was about the uh, fusion center that's on in Chicago on the south side, remember? It was, like, way earlier... I can't remember... We hope to see you all at our annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which happens this Wednesday evening, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and going until, I don't know, is your office too cheap to throw a holiday party? Make our holiday office party your holiday office party. Invite all your coworkers to the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. Don't particularly like everyone at your office then invite the cool kids to this is hell holiday office party does your work not have an office and you all work together from your own homes online then invite all your virtual co-workers to the annual this is hell holiday office party where we promise everyone who attends will get a this is hell related gift need a last minute gift we'll also have all of our this is hell merchandise available that's wednesday december 18th beginning at 6 p.m and running until who the hell knows i'm your bitter blind broke gap radio show host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show Alex Jerry I want to thank Jacob Hamburger for being on today's show and you should check out his New York Times op-ed that began that was uh, published on December 10th you can find out find all of Jacob's work by going to Tocqueville 21 and this week's hangover cure is the ultimate cure developed by scientists according to an article at the mirror headlined scientists develop the ultimate hangover cure Here's how to make it yourself. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms toward the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.